Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. It's time for Lombardi Memories. So it takes you back in time, into January or February, to the greatest one-day spectacle in all sports. This is the Every Other Tuesday podcast that looks back at each and every one of the 50-plus Super Bowls and tells the story of who won and why. For the fan who needs more than just a box score, this podcast goes drive-by-drive, play-by-play to the most dramatic games in history. I'm your host, Tommy A. Phillips, and you can visit my website at TommyAPhillips.com where you can find all of my books. Today we have Super Bowl 37, which was held on January 26, 2003, in the final Super Bowl in San Diego at Qualcomm Stadium between the four-time AFC champion Oakland Raiders and the first-time NFC champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers. As always, we have a pop quiz and then homework at the end of the episode. Dexter Jackson won Super Bowl 37 MVP. Who were the only other two defensive backs to be named Super Bowl MVP besides him? The answer will come at the end of the podcast. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers were known as losers for the first 20 years of their existence. John McKay and the Bucks went 0-26 before winning their first game in franchise history. While they made it to the playoffs three times in four years in the late 70s and early 80s, they were awful for the next decade. That's when Tony Dungy stepped in. He was named head coach in 1996, and within two seasons he had them in the playoffs. But after repeated failed trips to the playoffs, he was let go, and the Buccaneers went all out to get Raiders head coach John Gruden to replace him. They sent money and er traded early round draft picks to Oakland to pilfer Gruden over to their team. Now it was Super Bowl or bust. The Bucs won five of their first six games and nine of their first 11. Quarterback Brad Johnson got injured near the end of the season, and the Bucks lost an ugly Monday night football game to Pittsburgh with him out. But the 12-4 Bucks were gifted a first-round bye when Green Bay lost its final game to the Jets and fell all the way from number one to number three. Yes, that is still a very painful loss for me as a Packers fan. Johnson used that bye week to get healthy. The Bucks then won both playoff games, 31-6 over San Francisco in the divisional round, 
and 27-10 in Philadelphia over the Eagles to advance to their first Super Bowl in franchise history. Johnson threw for over 3,000 yards and 22 touchdowns with just six interceptions. His top receiver was Keyson Johnson, who caught 76 passes for over 1,000 yards and five touchdowns. The Bucks also had former receiver of the Jaguars, Keenan McCardell, who caught 61 for 670 yards and six touchdowns. Michael Pittman stepped into the starting running back role whenever Warwick Dunn moved on to Atlanta. And Pittman ran for over 700 yards. Fullback Mike Allsott, he was still with the Bucks. He ran for over 500 yards, caught 35 passes, scored seven times. And the Bucks had the number one defense in the NFL. Defensive end Simeon Rice picked up 15 and a half sacks, and defensive tackle Warren Sapp got another seven and a half. Defensive back Brian Kelly led the team with eight interceptions. The Oakland Raiders had a bizarre 2002 season. They started the season with four straight wins, scoring at least 30 points in all four. Then they lost four in a row, including overtime losses to both other California teams, the Chargers and 49ers, of course. They followed that up by winning five in a row and seven out of eight to claim the number one seed in the AFC at a record of... 11 and 5. The Raiders easily dispatched of both playoff opponents. They beat the Jets 30 to 10, then crushed the Titans 41 to 24 to advance to their first Super Bowl since 1983. The Raiders have never lost a Super Bowl before. They have won Super Bowls 11, 15, and 18. Oakland had the number one offense in the NFL. Quarterback Rich Gannon threw for 4,689 yards and 26 touchdowns and just 10 interceptions. His top receiver, none other than 49er legend Jerry Rice, who had 92 catches for over 1,200 yards and 7 touchdowns. Receiver Jerry Porter led the team with 9 receiving touchdowns, going for 688 yards. Running back Charlie Garner put up over 900 yards rushing and receiving, so over 1,800 yards total, and he scored 11 touchdowns. Receiver Tim Brown also had over 900 receiving yards. This offense was stacked and loaded, plus they had future Hall of Fame defensive backs Rod Woodson and Charles Woodson on the other side of the ball. It was easy to see why they were named four-point favorites. But the day before the Super Bowl, Raiders starting center Barrett Robbins went missing. It turned out that he didn't take his medication and he had a manic episode where he was out partying on Super Bowl Saturday. He was in no mental state to play, so Raiders head coach Bill Callahan benched him and Adam True stepped in for him. The Bucks won the coin toss, ran it twice, and then on third down, Brad Johnson got hit by defensive end Regan Upsaw. His pass floated to Charles Woodson for the interception. 
he returned the pick to the Tampa Bay 36. Gannon threw to Garner for eight yards, then he hit Brown for a first down at the 20. Simeon Rice picked up a third down sack of Gannon, though, so the Raiders settled for a 40-yard Sebastian Sienikowski field goal to make it 3-0. On the kickoff return, Running back Aaron Stecker lost the ball as he hit the ground. The officials erroneously called it a fumble on the field. Gruden challenged and won the ball back for his team, but now he was down to just one challenge. This is why it's such a good thing that the NFL now automatically reviews touchdowns and turnovers. Johnson threw to receiver Joe Jervisis for a first down at the 40. After a couple of incompletions, the Bucks got back-to-back 23-yard gains on a pass to Jervis's and a toss back to Pittman. That set up a 31-yard field goal by kicker Martin Gramatica, and the Buccaneers tied the game at three apiece. The Raiders went three and out with Defensive end Greg Spires ending their possession with a sack. The Bucks followed out followed out with the three and out of their own. This is part of a frustrating first quarter for both teams because the Raiders went three and out a second time, and then the Bucks got only one first down on a slant pass to Keyson Johnson before punting again. At the end of the first quarter, Gannon threw an interception to defensive back. Dexter Jackson, who returned the pick to midfield. To start the second quarter, Brad Johnson threw a pass to Keyson Johnson for a first down past the 30. Allstott further moved the ball down to the 22, but then he got tackled for a loss by linebacker Bill Romanowski. The Bucks settled for a 43-yard Gramatica field goal, so their lead was just 6-3. Gannon threw to Porter for nine yards, and then Garner picked up the first down, which was only the second first down of the game for Oakland. Gannon now threw another interception to Jackson, who returned this one to the Oakland 45, so the Bucks now had field position. While they couldn't get a first down, punter Tom Tupa put down his punt down at the 11. Raiders went three and out. Simeon Rice picked up another sack, and the Raiders punted again, and this time receiver Carl Williams returned the punt to the Oakland 27. So this was great field position thanks to that second Jackson interception. Pittman started the first drive with a, or the new drive, with a six-yard run before blasting all the way down to the three. Allstop pounded it twice from there and scored the opening touchdown of the game from about a yard out. It took until 6.24 to go in the second quarter, but the team had finally crossed the goal line and the Bucks took a 13-3 lead. The Raiders at this point had just 39 total yards in six drives. They picked up some more on a Gannon pass to Porter for a first down, but the Raiders soon had a punt once again. Tampa Bay took over at their own 23. P. 
Hitman blasted for five yards, and Bucks got a first down on an offside penalty on the Raiders. Pittman then went through a big hole, and he got close to the first down. Allstop picked that up on a catch as he got to the Oakland 43. After the two-minute warning, the Raiders got covered two more penalties, offside and then illegal use of hands. So that was first down for the Bucks, And then Johnson threw the keys on Johnson to get close to the next first down, which Allstop picked up on a run. Johnson then went to Allstop on a pass, got them down to the five-yard line. Very next play, Johnson went back shoulder to Keenan McCardell on the right side for a touchdown. 30 seconds left in the half, the Bucks led 20-3. The Raiders tried throwing on first down, but when Gannon was hit to force an incompletion, they thought better of it and just ran the ball twice. The Bucks had only one timeout remaining, which they used, but they didn't have enough to force a punt. But still, they went to the half up by 17. The Bucks started the second half by forcing a three and out and following with a long drive. Johnson scrambled for a gain of 10 before throwing the keys on Johnson for a first down at the 40. Next, it was Jervis' catching a third down pass to move the chains. Johnson went back to Jervis' for a first down, got down to the 14. Next, Johnson threw to tight end Ken Dilger, play accent, got down to the 1. Now the Bucks got pushed back on a penalty, but then Johnson made up for it, threw to McCardell for his second touchdown of the game, an 8-yarder that made it 27-3. Tampa wasted no time in scoring again. On the second play of the Raiders' next drive, defensive back Dwight Smith picked off again and passed and went 44 yards to the house. Now it was 34-3, and the game looked to be open. The Raiders weren't out of it, though. After a sack by defensive end Ellis Wims that set them back to start the drive, they managed to mount a charge. Gannon threw to tight end Doug Jolly over the middle for a first down at the 43. The Bucks then got called for pass interference on a third down play, even though the ball was tipped. There is no ex explanation why that happened. On the next third down, Gannon threw to the back of the end zone, and Porter hauled it in on the end line for what was ruled an incompletion. But Callahan threw the challenge flag and it got overturned. It was ruled a touchdown. Despite looking like he bobbled the ball as he stepped out of bounds, they ruled it a touchdown that he had controlled the ball. And it, it was 34-9. to Callahan then kind of, uh, he, it was as if the he, he figured his team had no chance, so he just cavalierly went for two. Simeon Rice sacked. Gannon on the two-point play, and the score remained at 34-9. Oakland forced a Tampa punt to start the fourth quarter. Linebacker Tim Johnson rushed in and blocked Tom Tupa's punt, and defensive back Eric Johnson picked it up and dived into the end zone for a touchdown. Suddenly, it was 34-15. 
But again, Callahan weirdly decided to go for two, and Gannon's pass went out of the end zone and incomplete, 34-15. The Bucks had the chance to end the game on the next drive. Johnson threw to Keyson for a first down, and then the Bucks drew a 16-yard pass interference penalty on Charles Woodson on the third down, even though it looked like the ball was uncatchable. Pittman ran for a first down at the 11, setting up a short field goal attempt by Gramatica. But Gramatica never got a chance to kick. Tupa flubbed the hold, and the ball ended up in the hands of Gramatica. He did not pull a Garo-Yapremian, he just simply went down for a loss and not attempted to throw. Gannon started the new drive with a 9-yard pass to Jolly. Running back Tyrone Wheatley then caught a screen for first down at 38. Gannon converted a third down with a pass to Jolly at the 46. And then he threw a sidearm throw to Garner that got the Bucks or the Raiders to the Bucks 48. And then that's when Jerry Rice, the famous San Francisco receiver, caught a deep ball for a touchdown. Raiders should have had the two-point conversion, too, because Porter caught the two-point pass, and he was forced out of, the, out of bounds by the defenders. According to the rules of that time, he should have been ruled in because that was a force out, but they didn't give him the points, and that made it just 34-21 to 21 when the Raiders could have made it 34-24 to 24 had they just kicked all three extra points, or maybe... 34-27 if they had made all three two-point conversions. The Bucks ran down the clock with runs by Pittman. Also caught a third down play action pass for a first down. The Bucks took off a ton of time. They had the punt, but this time Tupa got the punt away and the Raiders took over at their own 27. Gannon threw the Rice for a first down before getting tackled at the 38 at the two-minute warning. Now, this Super Bowl had a laughable ending. The Raiders had no timeouts, but they at least had the chance to come back if they could somehow recover an onside kick and score twice. And as it turned out, Gannon did throw two touchdown passes. They were just both to the wrong team. First, linebacker Derek Brooks took one back for a touchdown, then Dwight Smith got his second pick six of the game, first player in Super Bowl history to score on two pick sixes in the same game. When defensive end Chris Cooper of the Raiders picked up the final kickoff, he thankfully ran out the final couple of seconds so Gannon couldn't throw another pick six. After all that, the Buccaneers have won their first Super Bowl 48-21. Dexter Jackson was named game MVP for his two first-half interceptions, joining Miami's Jake Scott in Super Bowl VII and Dallas's Larry Brown in Super Bowl XXX as the only defensive backs to win Super Bowl MVP. That's the answer to today's pop quiz question. Now, if I were to give out my own MVP, I'd go with Pittman. He rushed for 124 yards on 29 carries, and he really set the tone of the game in that first half. 
He had one of the biggest first halves in Super Bowl history. Even though he didn't score, he was a big part of the Bucks' first half dominance. For least value of player, that's easy, that goes to Rich Gannon, because he threw five interceptions of Super Bowl record. Those include three pick sixes, another Super Bowl record. He contributed more to the Buccaneers' cause than he did to his own team's cause. He may have been MVP during the regular season, but he was the LVP in the Super Bowl. Best player you don't remember? How about Penn Stater Joe Juravicis? He caught four passes for 78 yards, with his longest going for 33 yards. He definitely played a big role in the Bucks' offensive success. The best play of this game is hard to say, because on a blowout like this, it's hard to point out a single play. I'm going to go with Dexter Jackson's second interception, because it set up the Bucks with great field position, which they eventually converted on the score to touchdown after an exchange of punts. And from there, it was just downhill from there. The biggest play you don't remember, though, 16-yard pass interference call on Charles Woodson on a third down. Now, that was with the Raiders trailing by 19. Seemed the ball was uncatchable, and if that was the case, the Raiders should have gotten the ball back on a punt. It should have just been incomplete. Said the Bucks kept it alive. Eventually couldn't make a field goal, but were able to eat off a lot more time. If Woodson doesn't get called for that, do the Raiders have more time to make this one at least a little bit closer? Well, it looked like a bad call to me, but in the end, it didn't matter much. It could have, though. Best player on the losing team, easy one here, Jerry Rice. While the Raiders ran for just 19 total yards in this game, Rice had five catches for 77 yards and that 48-yard touchdown. He may not have been his San Francisco self, but he was still outstanding. He played a great second half after being kept off the score sheet for the first half. For this week's homework, I'm going with a book on a member of the losing team. It's written by Bill, linebacker Bill Romanowski with Adam Sefter and Phil Tolley. It's called Romo, My Life on the Edge. Living Dreams, and Slaying Dragons. In this book, Romanowski reveals exactly how painfully that too, painful physically that 2002 season was for him. It's a fascinating read from a guy who came up short of winning his fifth Super Bowl after winning two with San Francisco, two with Denver. Next time, we will have a dynasty on our hands. The New England Patriots are back in the big game, trying for their second Super Bowl win in three seasons. Their opponents, another first-time Super Bowl team from the NFC South, but this time the Carolina Panthers. And what a game it was. My website is TommyAPhillips.com and also Nifty90s.com, Great80s.com, and Sweet70s.com, all of these domains lead to my site where you can buy all of my books. There's a couple of books on the way, too. Until next time, this is Tommy A. Phillips signing off. So long.
Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.